Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Serene Musselman talk with Becky Kessel-Miller. Becky is a writer and speaker on emotional, mental, and spiritual health in the church. She recently graduated from Northern Seminary with a master's in New Testament context, studying with Dr. Scott McKnight. Her discipleship workbook with Dr. McKnight is called Following King Jesus. She is working on a new book about Jesus's emotions. She and her husband and their five kids and cat just returned to the U.S. after living in the Netherlands for the past eight years, where she worked at an international church. Becky is the program manager for Seminary Now. Hi, Becky. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar. Thank you so much, Serena and Lynn, for having me. I'm uh, so glad, Becky, that you joined us for this conversation. Uh, I'm excited to to dive in to all kinds of great, uh, great things in our discussion. Well, Becky, before you and I ever actually met in person, I learned about eight years that you and your family lived in the Netherlands from some Facebook posts where you shared this beautiful furniture that you brought back from overseas. And it's just gorgeous. Tell me a little bit about what that was like finding those pieces of furniture. Absolutely. That was really a a hardcore hobby for me for my last three years living in the Netherlands was going to these secondhand shops that they call Kringlope, which means basically circle walk. So it's kind of this the circle of life. You buy the furniture and the household goods and then you donate them and then someone else buys them. They're really big on recycling and sustainable living. And the younger generations of Dutch people love modern furniture. So Ikea, simple, clean lines, white, everything. And so there's all of this antique furniture from their Oma and Opa's houses that they don't want. And so, you know, they clean out their parents' attics and just donate all of this and then go to Ikea, how they pronounce Ikea, and buy, buy new furniture there. And so I learned of the eight or nine Kringlope shops that were around Maastricht, the city that I lived in, and would regularly spend a Saturday going and picking up antique pottery and plates and the Delft blue. My whole dining room is done in Delft blue plates. Um, I bought. That sounds so wonderful. It was incredible. That is so beautiful. And I also, as you recall, uh, expressed my jealousy and frustration when I saw this great pair of boots you were wearing and you're like, oh yeah, well, I got them in the Netherlands. I'm like, oh, so I can't. (laughs) I have probably not only furniture, but clothes too. 10 pairs of leather boots that were perfectly broken in that I probably got for five to seven euros a pair. So wow, you are an Olympic level shopper. That is so cool. Someday I want to own an import business and go to European secondhand shops and bring back stuff and, you know, mark it up and sell it to Americans. That sounds like an, a dream Saturday to spend in those thrift stores. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about what actually took your family there. How did you end up in the Netherlands for eight years? Sure. It was an invitation from my youth pastor and a prophetic dream. It's really one of the most miraculous stories of my life. When I was a teenager, I felt called to missions. And one of the few times I, I feel like I've heard God speak audibly was when I was 16 and I, I sensed God saying, you you will go to the nations. So I kept my eyes open for mission opportunities. And then when I was a freshman, I think, in university, 
I had the elders of my church pray with me as I was discerning my future and my calling. And I went to an Assemblies of God church, so they were into dreams and visions. And one of them said, I feel like God's going to speak to you in a dream. Um, and I feel like in the Anglican world that I'm in now, that would be a really weird thing to say. But in my context, then that was very normal. So I was paying attention to my dreams. And a few days later, I had a really vivid dream that I wrote down in my diary about being in this European city with this cobblestone square and walking toward this church and going inside. And it was dusty, like it hadn't been used for church. There were no pews. And people were putting down just plywood flooring and folding chairs and bringing in musical equipment. And it's like we were setting up church in a place that hadn't been a church in a long time. And that was when I was probably 18 years old. So <clears throat> 10 years later, um, I was living in Rhode Island. I'd been married. I had two kids. My husband and I were praying about missions, but we were just working American jobs. And my youth pastor reached out and he had moved to the Netherlands and was planting a church and said, hey, I know you've always been interested in missions. We could do some help. You should think about coming to help us. So I looked up the city on Wikipedia and I got goosebumps and chills because it was the center square of Maastricht was the exact square and church that I had seen in a dream 10 years before down to the details, like the curved front of the church and the lamppost by the door. And so I shouted across our apartment to my husband. I said, hey, I think we're moving to the Netherlands. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> I said, look at this. I pulled up my diary and I showed him my notes from a decade before. And so we flew over to visit. And the first time we walked around the city, we just had this sense of being home. So that's amazing. God miraculously provided a job for my husband that sponsored our residence permit. So we didn't even go as missionaries. We went with work visas. And so we were there for eight years serving in this church plant. It was incredible. Wow. That's an awesome story. Amazing. What did you enjoy about your time living there? Is there something that stands out? The bike culture was probably one of my favorite things. Uh, there are dedicated bicycle lanes on every street in the around the 1950s, the Dutch decided to really invest in bike infrastructure. And so it's just built in part of the cities. The bikes have their own stoplights and everyone bikes. It's just what you do. I mean, bike theft is a huge problem. <laughs> Again, it's the Kringlope concept. Like it's they consider it the circle. If you leave your bike, someone else just picks it up and then you go steal someone else's bike. It's, <laughs> we did lose some bikes to theft um, and you just bike everywhere. So I actually gained a fair amount of weight when I moved back to the U.S. because I wasn't biking kilometers every day. Uh, I still have to figure out how to work activity back into my life. So that was one thing I loved um, outside of the church work was just the bike culture. Yeah, that would be amazing to live somewhere where we could bike and, you know, not worry so much about the cars whizzing past us. Yeah, I live in Wheaton now. And we actually so when we when we moved back to the States a year ago, we brought a shipping container for our household goods and we brought 17 bicycles for our seven person family. Wow, um, not excessive at all. Right. Well, it, but that's normal because you've got your race bike, you've yeah. got your city bike, you've got the bike with the kids seats, and then you've got multiple sizes for each kid. So it's what you do. That's amazing. Um, but Wheaton, Wheaton is not bike friendly. People yell at you if you bike on the sidewalk, but they also yell at you if you bike on the road. So we're struggling <laughs> with that a little. Well, um, tell me a little bit about what it was like to be in ministry uh, in the Netherlands. Were there things that you saw that were different or similar to your experiences that you had here in the States? It's been a lot of reverse culture shock coming back into the American church after being away eight years. I feel like so much has changed in American religion. And I was away 
for all of it. So it's been a very weird re-entry, not just going to the grocery store and having the reverse culture shock of a million cereal brands instead of like three, but the, the changes in the American church, um, because in my international context, we didn't, um, it wasn't a cross-cultural ministry where it was Americans as missionaries to Dutch people. It was a multicultural leadership team serving a multicultural church where we had people from over 100 nations coming through our church. And the turnover was really high. We had university students, expats, uh, people in um, people married to people from other countries, so multi-ethnic families. Um, so the biggest difference there was the sense of unity that we developed around following Jesus, knowing that was really all we had in common because our cultures were different, our cultural perspectives were different, our experience and tradition of Christianity was different. We had all kinds of beliefs about baptism and the Lord's Supper and speaking in tongues and women in ministry and and even just the difference between like a guilt innocence culture and an honor shame culture. So we had all this cultural change. And so the biggest thing we worked on as church leaders was um, unity and trying to, uh, it, 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 it basically felt like the church in Rome that Paul is writing to. When when Scott wrote uh, Reading Romans Backwards, Scott McKnight, I worked with him on a study guide called Teaching Romans Backwards. And I was teaching Romans backwards to uh, my church. And we just really hunkered down in Romans 14 and 15 because it was exactly speaking to our situation. How do we hold different convictions and yet work together? So that was the hardest and yet best part of international multicultural ministry. And that's been the weirdest thing about coming back to the U.S. is going to a monocultural church. Wheaton is very white. Um, and so being in an, in an almost all-white church and then seeing the segregation, like if you believe differently, you you go to a different church. There's just not a lot of crossover so there's not even space to have conversations about differing convictions and how we hold them together. People just separate. And, and it feels more divisive than even before I moved away. So I'm, I feel like I'm coming back into a very divided church that doesn't even understand how to approach unity. Um, I spoke on Zoom last winter to a multicultural campus group in Kansas, and I, I almost broke down crying because... I loved it. I, I, I was talking to students from from China and Brazil and I and in Kenya, and I missed that. So it felt like home for that that hour. So I really missed that multicultural community. As you brought those insights back, it sounds like it's informed some of the ways that you view ministry um, from your time there. What are some thoughts you have um, as you're navigating that now? of how maybe that's changed your view on ministry or insights that you could offer to those of us here in the States that haven't shared the experiences that you had of how we can grow in our approach to sort of crossing those lines in conversation mm. in our churches. I think one skill I gained was increasing my level of tolerance for discomfort. I just spent a lot of time uncomfortable there having to have conflict with people and learning to not be afraid of conflict. And I, I really don't mean conflict in a bad way. I mean it in a like, we disagree about how to handle this and we have to hash it out because we're 
this is it. This is the church. It's the only English language church uh, in in our tradition that that you ha- you just don't have an option. Like if you want to go to church, you come to this church. So we're not going to leave. Um, so we're going to work it out. And so I I just feel like I increased my tolerance for that level of discomfort. And I learned to compromise. And then I learned the things I wasn't willing to compromise on. I spent eight years serving as a pastor and not being called a pastor. And and ultimately, I realized that's something I'm not willing to compromise anymore. And so we chose a church when we came back that does affirm women as pastors. Hmm. And in the midst of all of this, you were also a student, right? You were studying abroad via... um, Northern Live online. So I'm sure that that was playing into the processing and the development that was taking place in your own personal theology. What was that like to be a student in the midst of everything else that you Mm -hmm. were experiencing? That was incredible. Um, I actually, when I moved to the Netherlands, I would say I was, I probably still was the complementarian, though I felt called to ministry myself. I had grown up in such a male dominated church world. But I started to quite like as I as I felt more competent and called in ministry myself, I started to question those limits. And so through Rachel Held Evans blog, I got introduced to Scott McKnight. I read The Blue Parakeet and and I changed my perspective. And then I realized I was called to be a pastor. Like I wasn't just called to be a missionary. I was actually called to pastor people. So I started looking at seminaries and uh, because of, of my connection with uh, with Dr. McKnight, I chose Northern because they had this online program. Um, I actually heard about his master's in New Testament cohorts and messaged him and said, hey, is this going to be available online? And at first he said no. And then a few months later, he tracked me down on the internet and said, hey, we're going to offer it online. And I immediately applied. So I was in the first live cohort in 2016. And I took my classes on Zoom before Zoom classes were cool. <laughs> Northern was doing it before anybody else. And the live classroom was incredible. So I flew over every summer for four years to be with my cohort and to take our, our intensive in person and then did all my classes. And then because of the time change, I was taking my classes at 11 p.m. until 1.40 a.m. on Monday nights. Um, there was one class that, for me, started at 2 a.m. And I did petition and get get permission to watch the recording later. They, they didn't actually make me take that class live. But it went up to the level of the board. Like, oh, we have an international student. We need to change our policy. Um, so working through all the kinks of online education in the middle of the night, I have five kids. Two of my kids were born in the Netherlands. So I had a baby when I started seminary. Um, on my first intensive, she flew over with me and I was breastfeeding her between classes. Um, so it was, it was a lot. I was pastoring. I was parenting. I was writing books and then also taking seminary classes. It was a lot. I didn't sleep much for four years, but I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. That's amazing. I've been in some classes. We had a student who is in Australia and was joining us online in the middle of the night for an intensive. And I totally respect the commitment there. So kudos. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, You were you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you worked with Scott on a workbook for reading Romans backwards. You've worked with him on a few projects. And I think um, you were during this timeline, you were also working with him on following King Jesus, a, a workbook that's designed to help us live in relationship with God and others. Mm -hmm. And what made you want to be a part of that project? Well, I've wanted to be a writer since I was probably in third grade. And I realized I could write. 
and then realized that I wanted to write. So I've been writing um, my whole life. So to get the opportunity to actually publish with one of my heroes, one of my mentors and a good friend was an incredible opportunity. Um, I My first project with Zondervan was actually a teaching guide for the second edition of The Blue Parakeet. When the second edition came out, Zondervan had me create a curriculum. So it's got PowerPoint slides and a teacher's guide and quizzes, everything you'd need to teach it as a course. And I taught my students in the Netherlands through, uh, through the material as I worked on it. Um, so that was an honor to get to the book that had meant so much to me and it changed my life to get to work on the second edition. Um, then we did uh, Teaching Romans Backwards and Following King Jesus then was another Zondervan project. So after the Blue Parakeet study guide, when they wanted to create a discipleship curriculum with some of Scott's books, they said, well, Becky, would you would you just do it? And I was I was really thrilled to do that. That's great. And I was reading some of your writing or at least an interview that you did recently on Christianity Today. And part of as you've worked on these projects, uh, you described in that article that your interests have sort of honed in on a specific area of interest, which you described as, quote, the intersection of neuroscience, psychology, and sociology with biblical studies and theology to produce a better pastoral care in the church. That was really intriguing. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you mean by that, what drew you to that area of focus. So I developed that research interest as an outgrowth of my pastoral work. I ended up developing this unintentional specialty of providing pastoral care to vulnerable people, traumatized people, a lot of abuse survivors. And I started realizing I was making mistakes and I was causing harm, um, such as the woman who shared about her marriage troubles. And I encourage her to go to marriage counseling and we even helped pay for it but her husband was it wasn't a problem marriage she was married to an abusive man and so the marriage counseling made the abuse worse as it does you never send a couple where there's abuse to marriage counseling uh, together and and i made a huge mistake and it escalated until he uh, assaulted her and she finally was able to identify it as abuse and, and get away and then we supported her in leaving but through that whole thing i um realized i needed to learn a lot more so that I would do things right and I wouldn't cause harm. So I started reading about how to serve people who are abuse survivors and what is the best way to provide pastoral care. What's a trauma-informed approach? So the more I did that and the more I learned, um, the more I realized this is a much-needed field to explore in the church. So I had actually started working on a book draft before I started seminary on Jesus' emotions because I realized like the way we talk about emotion in the church and and the way there's this anti-emotion sentimentality in a lot of churches is not biblical because the Jesus of the Gospels is very emotional. So that is one of the things that led me to seminary was wanting to get the research skills to write that book. And then this pastoral interest in serving people dealing with trauma. Uh, I ended up writing my thesis in seminary on emotions in discipleship and emotions in the gospel. And then right now I'm getting trained in a form of therapy called internal family systems. That's a proven trauma healing tool. Um, And so I'm trying to bring all of that into my pastoral care work and then into my writing and research. Um, I did a a whole chapter in my thesis on the neuroscience of emotion and realized that's where the latest emotion research is happening. So we have to bring this into our conversation. If we're not citing neuroscientists, we're not using the most up-to-date information we have about what emotions are and how they work. Um, If we're not citing 
trauma experts like Bessel van der Kolk or Diane Langberg, we're missing out on this incredible field of knowledge that we can bring into our, our faith work. So I want to keep digging into that intersection and bring insights from sociology, psychology, neuroscience into biblical studies. I feel like they've been separated and siloed, but we could do so much good for the church if we brought them together. Yeah, absolutely. I can't help but thinking as a person who is in ministry, how much the past year and a half has really brought this need to the surface as we've all dealt with um, trauma and emotions of navigating so many things that have happened in our lives. It feels like this sort of work is even more needed in our churches. Have you seen that? Um, Does that resonate with you as well? Yes. I think the need has always been there, but there's been so much stigma around seeking mental health care or expressing our emotions. Um, And so I think that the American culture, at least, is becoming more open to people going to therapy and validating their emotions, expressing their emotions, learning how to do that in healthy ways. And then there has been an increased need, I think, because of the pandemic, that it's brought long existing problems more to the surface and then caused a lot of intense uh, problems for people. So there's both like there always has been a need that we haven't talked about. And yet now that need is even greater. And we're also running into not enough therapists to serve that need, which is a whole other conversation we could have about the onerous licensing process and how expensive it is and how you really have to have a lot of privilege just to become a therapist because of how long it takes and how expensive it is to get licensed. Um, and that's that's not to say I don't support licensed therapists. I, I think it's important to have oversight, but we just don't have enough therapists who can get through the process fast enough to serve the need. So anyone who wants to become a uh, a, a counselor serving all these traumatized people like there is you will never run out of clients unfortunately there's just such a need for it you know you mentioned something becky a minute ago where you said jesus is very emotional mm-hmm. and that just has stuck in my in my head uh because when you said that i thought you, you're feminizing jesus you know in other words it may be that part of the reason or in many people's minds, right? Yes. That to say, to connect emotion with Jesus is to connect him with something that we typically connect with women. And very emotional is what women do. And mm-hmm. stoic demeanor is what men do. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus is a man for sure. So when you say Jesus was very emotional or he had emotions, I think just coming to terms with how men and women can embrace the emotional component of who they are created at, in the image of God, right? Uh, but at any rate, it just struck me as you said that maybe that's also part of the reason there's been a reluctance um, to, to just Im- delve into uh, the emotions good and bad that we have because uh, mm-hmm. it, it just feels too too feminine um, yes. you're you're uh, and you're hoping to do even more study with this even going on for your PhD what has the journey been like so far it's been hard uh, it's uh, it's a really complicated process applying to seminary was nothing like applying for a PhD program um, I after studying for months I just took the GRE I haven't done advanced math since 
I did the SAT before high, like before college. Like I didn't even take advanced math because I was a writing major in college. So uh, I had to, I was taking Khan Academy math courses and GRE prep. I took a bunch of prep tests. So just like, just taking the test, which is one piece of the application has been months of work. And I, I got thankfully scores high enough that I feel like I'm good to apply. Um, I'm also taking language courses um, because I did uh, an MA and not an MDiv in seminary. So I didn't do Greek and Hebrew in seminary. So I'm now I'm taking my language courses. Thankfully, I have an undergrad minor in German because for uh, for a PhD in theology or New Testament, you have to read German and another research language, which I'm really hoping can be Dutch. And I don't have to learn French also, but I still may have to learn French. So there's just a lot of language work. Um, I have met with one potential advisor and I'm going to meet with another. But before a potential advisor will even meet with me, they want to see a thousand word essay on the state of research on Luke 4, which is what I want to do my dissertation on, and where I see the hole in the research. What what can I fill in? What is my unique angle before I'll even meet with them? And then once I get past that stage, if they want to work with me, then I've got a 30 page exegetical paper and a dissertation proposal, transcripts. Um, letters of recommendation from professors. So it's just, it's a part-time job just to apply for a program. It's a lot. Well, I, it, yes, it, it is. <laughs> and then you get in and the hard work starts, right? <laughs> right. But the fun work, the really fun, fun work too. I do have that sense. I, Eric Little used to say that he felt God's pleasure when he ran. And, and I do when I'm, when I'm, you know, neck deep in stacks of books at a desk and I'm I'm digging into them and I'm I'm reading and researching and synthesizing I feel God's pleasure it's it's a space that I'm made for and so I I, I want to to use that I want to develop that and I want to use that in service to to God in the church now that that's exciting yeah and I I think as more women get PhDs in theology and biblical studies that will inform both the academy and the, and the schools and hopefully the church as more and more are, uh, are following this model of pastor-scholar or scholar-pastor, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, I love that, the pastor-scholar uh, to bridge the academy and the church. It just takes too long for the knowledge that, that seminarians have, that professors have, that researchers have to trickle down into the church. It's like decades of difference between where the academy is at and what we know about the Bible and where most of the church is at with that understanding. So taking academic work and writing it in the language that the church can read, which I've learned from Scott McKnight because that's what he does, that's what I want to do is to translate it to the church. So Dr. Kohik, I would love your advice as I'm as I'm approaching a PhD program as a woman, give me your wisdom. What do I do? How do I do this? Oh, well, you're already well on your way and that you recognize it's going to take work. I think also you've you've already had the experience that uh, say, wait, I I actually can do this when you talked about gaining confidence and saying I, I can be a pastor. I think so much of the uh, roadblocks happen in our heads. Um, I mean, some people are better skilled at doing other things than than research and writing. But if you have those skills, you can still self-destruct if you play in your head the, the um, you know, I can't do this, I can't do this. It will take a lot of tenacity. Um, there will, 
the, the whole thing with a PhD is people are trying to tell you over and over and over again where you're wrong. It's kind of like being in med school, right? They're not interested in what you know, they're interested in what, they, what you don't know because they don't want you, as you put it earlier, to do harm. And so in the same way, the PhD program is trying to find out what you don't know. And so you just keep drilling in and they're not interested in the 90 or 95% of what you know. They're interested in the 5% of what you don't know. So I think that that can be draining, especially if they're not very generous in communicating what you don't know <laughs> to you. Uh, I do remember uh, one time um, when my advisor used the language of um, this is high school work. We were sitting with a, um, with a very important uh, sc visiting scholar. And I remember sitting there, I was in like my second year of classes and I had just come straight out of undergrad into graduate school. And uh, I was married at the time and I just sat there. I don't know how much longer the interview went. They were looking at my paper. I don't know, maybe 15 minutes longer. I don't know, it seemed like a year. And I just thought to myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. You're, you, you could just go home, start your family, don't cry, don't cry. And I didn't, I made it through the meeting without crying. So small victory. But that, that label stuck with me for a long time, 15 years easily. I really believed that I was uh, pretty darn stupid and it was only lucky that I'm, that I'm getting through things. And you know, I, um, no one in my church supported me doing this. My family did. My parents and my husband very much supported. But it took a long time to scrub that barb um, out from from my brain. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think, those, yeah, you have to be resilient. That, you know, yeah, I know you have to be resilient. And and boy, I needed to learn a lot. So that. Um, there's no question about that, but just kind of the way it was said was embarrassing and demoralizing. And uh, but yeah. you know that's that's also part of the game or reality. And um, you hope I, I hope I don't perpetuate that part of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I can feel it in my gut right now what that might have been like for you because I there are those things that were said to me. I was once told I was unfit for upper level church leadership. Ah. And I don't think I'll ever get that phrase out of my head. Yeah, I know. St stuff sticks like that. And, you know, that's where you just have to give it over uh, to God. And, uh, you know, it. Some, I mean, sometimes truth can't, it is hard, right? And it, it can break your heart and it, it uh, but you want it told to you by friends who have your best interest in mind. And, um, yeah, that doesn't always happen. So I would say resiliency is necessary to finish the PhD. You have to have talent, but you also have to have resiliency. Um, and my mom gave me great advice. She said, enjoy the journey. And that, that was so helpful because there is something wonderful about being able to say to people, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do this or that because I have to go study my books, you know, and it's like, <laughs> for you and me and for Serene, it's like, oh, this is heaven. <laughs> yes. Did you start writing your dissertation while you were doing classwork? Or no. did you separate the phases? Separate phases. So um, I did three years of classwork. I went to an American school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. So three years of classwork, um, then a year to study for my comps. Then I took my comps. And in between there is when I had my 
my two kids. Um, and then I started writing the dissertation and that took a, a long time. I was also teaching adjunct. Uh, and at one point I even taught full time for a year. Looking back, I could have reduced, I think, my the amount of time I taught and, and tried to get my dissertation done sooner. On the other hand, coming straight out of, of undergrad, there was some maturing that needed to happen. I needed to sharpen my methodology. I needed to understand the field more. So, you know, it, um, it, it, it took me a while. My dream was to finish before my kids graduated high school. I, I did. <laughs> they were only in, uh, I'm trying to think now, maybe kindergarten and second grade, something like that. I don't know, somewhere in there. So yeah, that was the, the second happiest day of my life was graduating with my PhD. The first happiest day was my uh, wedding day. I, I wouldn't say the day of my two children's birth was happy. It was joyful, nope. but nope. <laughs> there was a little bit of other <laughs> nope. things going That's on, other uh, yeah. <laughs> feelings. So I'm not, I don't use yeah. the adjective happy, but with, with my PhD graduation, it was just sheer, sheer happiness. You know, like it actually happened. I never thought it would happen. And mm. uh, I, it, yeah, even now the memory is still so wonderful. I, it reminds me of, of, um, the idea that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which I actually wrote in whiteboard marker on my bathroom mirror when I was in labor with <laughs> one of my kids, like for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Um, and, and that, that is actually a really helpful principle. Like I really want to hold on to looking forward to that graduation day. It opens doors in ways that, um, not having a PhD doesn't, if those are the doors you want to, you know, you want to go through, but it just takes, a resilience so yeah i want to do big things and i've i've only recently gotten comfortable as a woman saying that because i've gotten so much criticism for being a visionary for wanting to lead uh for being a leader for for advocating to have the title that goes with my position i've been so criticized for that and, and accused of you know being prideful and, and wanting power but it's just that women can and should lead and they should be given the accolades and the titles that go with their leadership positions. And so I want to do right. big things and I'm, I'm comfortable saying that now. Like I really want to make changes in the church to where we stop harming vulnerable people. And I want to change that in the academy. I want to change that in the way pastors are trained. I want to change it in my own pastoral practice. So that's why it feels like getting that training and that qualification is so important. So I'm taken seriously when I, when I make, when I do this work. Right, and it and it will shape you, right? I mean, and that's the, that's really the key in all of it. And hopefully, it will shape you in ways that um, help you better achieve what God has laid before you to do. Those, you know, as He's prepared all of us, right, for these good works to walk in. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, yeah, but. Yeah. Thanks for the realistic advice. I really appreciate the, the honesty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and you're on your way. I know we want to congratulate you here at Northern Seminary with your new job. Oh, yeah. We, we, it's been so awesome having you here today for the conversation, but I feel like we can't wrap up without congratulating you on this new role with Seminary Now. So tell us a little bit about it. What is Seminary Now and what is your role that you're doing? Mm -hmm. 
Seminary Now is a video streaming service, kind of like Masterclass or even Netflix, where you get a monthly or an annual subscription, and then you have access to our full library of online seminary courses. And I, um, I've although cheered- can I just interrupt real quick, Becky? Yeah, they are seminary courses, but not for credit. Sometimes yes, people think that it's an MA level, and it's not MA level. But for anyone who is thinking, man, I'd like to try, but I just seminary uh, level classes, MA level classes, but I'm not, I need to start in the shallow end. Um, seminary now is perfect for that. Get your feet wet, yes. you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have theology courses, we've got biblical studies courses, we have practical ministry courses, and um, they're, the course is about two and a half hours long each, usually about 10 sessions, short videos. They work really well for individual study, but also for uh, small groups, Sunday school classes. We have a lot of churches that have a church subscription and they use it for leadership training and development for their staff, which is a, a great way to do it. So it was fun watching the program be formed and grow and develop. I started freelancing and creating workbooks for some of the courses. And then this uh, opening came for a program manager to work with the executive director. And so it's been really fun to step into that and help manage and produce this really incredible program. Has there been a particular series that you've been a part of helping produce that stands out to you or that you particularly enjoyed for some reason? One of the most important ones we've done in the few months that I've been working there is called Advocating with Survivors of Sexual Violence by Nicole Lim. And she is a documentary filmmaker who started a nonprofit organization called Freely in Hope that helps women who have survived sexual violence and uh, provides for them, uh, make sure they get an education, make sure that they get healed, and then gives them leadership opportunities. And so her whole approach is it's teaching pastors and church leaders how to understand abuse and trauma and then how to serve survivors by advocating with them, not for them because they have their own voice, but giving them leadership opportunities and ways to grow into their voice. And it's a gorgeous course. I mean, Nicole shared some of her footage with us and let us use it for the course. So it's beautiful. She uh, did an interview with a survivor that they've uh, worked with. And so it's it, visually, it's gorgeous. It's incredibly powerful content. I wish every church leader would see it. It was a real honor to get to work on that course. That's amazing. Well, we'll definitely leave a link in today's description if anyone wants to go over to the website and take a look at what courses are available. Uh, well, as we finish up today, what's on the horizon for you? What projects are you working on now? Well, through Christmas, it's PhD application season. <laughs> um, I've been doing some copy editing for some Christian publishers in the area, so I'm going to wrap those up in addition to continuing my job with Seminary Now. And I'm working on my book proposal for a book on Jesus's emotions, trying to get that to an agent. And then I am also working with Dr. McKnight on his Everyday Bible Guide, which is going to be a 16-volume, kind of a devotional commentary. It's a really cool project on every book of the New Testament. And so I'm um, the first reader and editor on all of his manuscripts and then writing discussion questions for each of the sections in the book. So that's a really fun project. Galatians and James are done and uh, I'm about to start on Acts. So that's, exciting. That sounds so fun. Yes, yes. And you get to celebrate Christmas with 
surrounded by all your furniture from the Netherlands? Do you have a special piece uh, that you bought over there um, oh, of China or anything that is uh, especially memorable? Yeah, one of my favorite pieces is a prayer stool that's actually here next to my desk. Um, and I don't know how old it is, but it's a beautiful antique prayer stool. And I used to see them all the time. And I thought, I don't have anywhere in my house to put one. But before I move, I'll buy one. Well, a few months before we moved, there was the COVID lockdown. So all the thrift stores were closed. They finally opened like weeks before we moved. And I was scouring them. No one had a prayer stool. And I was devastated. And I prayed and prayed, God, please help me find one. Well, in the last week before we packed our shipping container, I found three. <laughs> three antique prayer stools so they're they're throughout my house and I'm just really thrilled to have that those uh those pieces in my home wonderful thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast Becky and for our listeners uh we'll leave some links in the description for you you can find Becky on Twitter and Instagram at Bcastle Miller and keep up with all that she's doing in this field as she takes on Jesus's emotions and healing trauma in the church so thank you for joining us today Becky thank, thank you, Becky. you so much it was really an honor you've been listening to an episode of the alabaster jar if you enjoyed this week's conversation with Becky Castle Miller, we've left information in the description so that you can follow her work. We've also included a link for Seminary Now, a subscription-based streaming video platform that delivers exclusive biblical, theological, and practical ministry training from a diverse group of leading educators and thought leaders. We'll be back here next Tuesday with another conversation. Don't forget to share this episode or click subscribe so that you can be notified when we upload new episodes.